Navigating the Datascape with Chris Presley and special guests. Welcome to episode 18 of the Datascape podcast. I'm your host, Chris Presley. I've seen a lot of interest in Postgres lately, and with the recent release of Postgres version 10, I thought it'd be a good time to get to know the product better. So joining to us today to help us navigate this part of the Datascape is Alvaro Hernandez from Ongress. Hey, Alvaro, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you. Uh, thank you very much for having me here. Uh, it's glad to uh, finally connect with you, folks. Uh, Alvaro and I have been uh, trying to connect and talk about Postgres for at least three months, but uh, he's been so True. busy. We just and, and my travel schedule has just not allowed this, so I'm really excited to to do this show. Alvaro, help the audience get to know you a little bit better. Can you tell us about yourself and your career? Sure. Actually, the founder of Ongress, uh, this is a database and research company where we work mainly with Postgres, and probably that's one of the reasons I may be here today, but typically uh, in general, the database space. So as a research and development company, we, uh, we developed and, and research new products for the database space, namely Postgres. And we also provide professional services about uh, Postgres to support, maintenance, uh, trainings. But in the past, and talking a little bit about my history and career, I've also founded other projects, mainly in the open source space, like TorDB, which is a database created in Spain, hence the, the name Tora. And it's a database that, uh, the first database uh, that connects a NoSQL world with the SQL world, moving data from MongoDB to Postgres. And in general, I have always been a founder and startup member of, on database uh, and software development companies. And uh, member of the Postgres community for quite a long time, frequent speaker at conferences, and in general, an open source advocate and passionate. Excellent, excellent. And yes, you're absolutely right. Postgres is what we're going to talk about today. Although I am now very interested in hearing more about ToroDB, but maybe we'll have to save that for a, another episode. Um, sure, whenever you can, or you want. Let's let's uh, let's start with something that's been bugging me. I, I mean, I've seen Postgres around my entire well for many many years. Uh, as uh, I'm a, a Linux advocate as well. How do you say Postgres? Is it Postgre, PostgreSQL, <laughs> Postgres? Uh, what's going on there? Okay, this is a really tough question. <laughs> and actually not being a native English speaker, I might be slightly wrong. However, the official pronunciation, and actually if you go to the wiki site, there's, there's a recording of the audio of how to pronounce it. It is something similar to PostgreSQL, right? However, what is important here is that there, there's two options, either to say the full name, PostgreSQL, or to make it shorter, saying Postgres. However, what is not accepted is Postgre, okay. right? And in, in, without S. So other than that, you're, you're good to go. Okay, well, good. I mean, now, now we can at least come away from the show uh, <laughs> speaking like a pro. So good, thank you right. for clearing that up. So when we think, when I think about the product, I mean, one of the, as a database professional myself, so why Postgres? So this is a really, a really good question, because if we look at the current history of Postgres, the recent trends, like for example, DB Engine's ranking or Gardner analysis, or actually the stock overflow large uh, interviews to developers, we see that Postgres is growing, has been growing significantly throughout the last five years. I would say it's growing even exponentially. And the trend is likely to be continued in the next years. However, if you still look at the market share, Postgres is a bit of a niche database still. 
And there's some people who really ask this question to themselves, why Postgres? So in order to answer it, let me just uh, separate two different replies, two different answers. The first one is commercial versus, versus open source. How Postgres does compete with uh, commercial databases? I would say that in general, pretty good. From a core perspective, a technology perspective, Postgres has nothing missing that all the commercial databases have, like Oracle or SQL Server. Um, there are some features that Postgres doesn't have that they have and vice versa. But in all in all, for the features that most people use, they are they're mostly replaceable. And actually, I've seen a lot of replacement. Customers come to us to migrate from most of these databases, mainly Oracle to Postgres. And you know, satisfaction is pretty high. So yep, it's database that can compete here very well. And the features that Postgres has database are really, really advanced. Now, when it comes to open source decision, when, when already someone knows that want to use an open source database, then MySQL comes frequently into the debate. And actually, it's much more popular than Postgres. However, in, in my opinion, and even though MySQL and derivatives like, like MariaDB have uh, great features and, and are good databases, they can really not compete with Postgres precisely in terms of feature set. Postgres is extremely featured database, has tons of features in terms of SQL support, in terms of DBA support, really advanced capabilities. Transactional DDL, for example, comes into place, right? You can you can alter your tables inside a transaction, and if you're not happy with the result, you can roll it back. And this is something that other databases have a hard time with. So there are many of those features that are baked into Postgres, and you know they're not in MySQL or MySQL derivatives. They are trying to play to catch up and they're doing a good job, but I still think they are very far. So some people just say, you know, we use MySQL because it's easier, or, you know, because this is a small project, we'll use MySQL at the beginning and later we'll switch to Postgres. So for this latter, you know, I would say really directly, if you really want to use Postgres, go Postgres, because Postgres can run very small. I've seen Postgres running on a, on a really 60 megabyte uh, machine, you know, and uh, running on almost on a watch. So yeah, Postgres can run fine there. So don't, don't think Postgres is only for big systems and you can start well with it. And for the former group who just think that Postgres is more difficult than MySQL. Well, my opinion at first, it's actually, in my opinion, easier. Now, this should not be a, a showstopper to, to not start using it. If after all, what you care more is about these kind of features that the database provides you and the kind of the stability and, and really proudness that are, is around the Postgres community. Everybody respects Postgres and few people will say it's not a stable or durable or trustable database. Okay. At one point uh, in talking to some of my peers, uh, this was months ago, someone told me that when Postgres was kind of not necessarily first created, but uh, and, and not in recent history, it was slated to you know dominate and replace Oracle because it's free and very like Oracle. Is it like Oracle? How does it compare? Well, I would actually say it's they're quite different databases. If you look at the user perspective, if you use like common SQL, well, after all, SQL is is one of the reasons that why relational databases are very popular. There's a huge ecosystem around it and SQL is a standard. So from a SQL perspective, if you just you know, connect to one database and issue some queries, there is really not too much difference, but not among any other relational databases. If you both more or less respect the SQL standard, both are probably the two databases which implement most part of it. So, you know, the queries that run in one system will run similarly on the other one. Now, in terms of administration, database and features, they are, they are different. There are significant differences and also, also architectural differences. For example, 
Oracle implements concurrency and, and durability through a redo log, which can basically computes how to undo some operations. Whereas in Postgres, there is no such capability. And, and actually, there's, there's more or less the opposite, which is called the, the wall files. The advantages and disadvantages are depending on the use case. For example, Postgres will let you run long running queries almost without time bound, whereas in Oracle, queries that will run for a long time will get canceled if the reduce segment is, is not big enough, right? So yes, this, there, there can be significant differences between databases. However, it is true that if you're migrating off of Oracle, the go-to choice is Postgres almost always. Okay, okay, good. And is, is, there, is there a specific reason why people should lean towards, when, when doing an Oracle migration, when choosing between Postgres and MySQL, Kind of one of the factors that made you make you say, you know, Postgres is the de facto go-to. I would say there there's two, uh, one, one technical, one non-technical. The non-technical one is that some people that want to migrate uh, off of Oracle, they're doing that for the reason that they don't want to deal with Oracle. Mm-hmm. And most MySQL databases, let's say, you know, there's, there's MariaDB, but in general, MySQL is controlled by Oracle. So if you, you know, that's among the reasons you might want to, migrate from Oracle. Now, for the technical reason is that probably if you use Oracle, it's likely that you're using store procedures in PLSQL language. Postgres has a procedural store language. Actually, Postgres is very flexible and you can have many different procedural languages. You can install all the procedural store languages. However, the main one is called PLPG SQL. And even though it is not exactly like PL, Oracle's PLSQL, it was designed after it. And it's quite similar. So the migration, it's quite smooth. You might need to adapt your store procedures a bit, but you know the, the syntax terminology, programming style, it's mostly the same thing. Just the, the set of functions is different and a few different in, in system, syntax are there, but mostly it's the same thing. So you know migration is significantly easier if you can if you have store procedures basically. Okay. Okay, good. What attracted you to work with Postgres? Well, actually, this is a bit fun because I started working with Postgres a long time ago, I would say around more than 15 years ago, when I was at the university and I had to do one project that need to manage data. At the time, I had no idea almost what a database was. So I just asked a colleague and say, you know, need a database, or I think I need a database. I need to store some data. Is the database the, the right choice? And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. And now which one? And he said Postgres and I say, okay. You know, I downloaded Postgres, install Postgres, configure Postgres, start using Postgres, and it served my purposes. And the thing is that has never stopped serving my purposes so far. In more than 15 years, I have not been limited by Postgres. I haven't seen anything that I wanted to do that wasn't there. So I stuck with Postgres. So I never actually did in the past a conscious decision of let's benchmark these three, four databases against each other in terms of feature set and so forth. I just started this one and has grown with me perfectly well and always served as my purpose, which at the end is what you're looking in a software product. Okay. Okay. What is the what is the largest? It, it, you mentioned the smallest implementation you've seen. What's the largest in terms of memory and cores and say database sizes that you've seen? Yeah, I've seen pretty large machines. Right now, we're working with one customer who has the largest or the fastest storage server available in Amazon. It is not the largest one in terms of cores and memory, even though it's very close. So right now this machine has 64 cores, uh, half a terabyte of RAM, but it's running eight disks of uh, almost two terabyte each SSD, NVMe actually. They're 
capable of delivering more than 3 million IOPS per second and 1.6 gigabytes of this throughput per second. You know, and Postgres is running there very happily, actually, you know, in, in this hardware and replicated through all the five replicas. So, you know, uh, this, uh, this is a nice setup, but I've also seen Postgres running in really big irons from IBM and, um, you know, sizes of databases in the order of dozens of terabytes. Okay. Whew, five replicas. <laughs> that I would not want their bill. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, it's pretty high. Wow. Is, is there a, is there a sweet spot for Postgres? Is it, is it uh, like better for OLTP or better for data warehousing or does it matter? Postgres is, is, is mainly um, a OLTP database as, as most relational databases, mainstream relational databases they are they do better in OLTP manner. That does not mean that it could not work uh, for OLAP or data warehousing capabilities. And actually one of the good things about Postgres is the ecosystem. So once we go out of main core Postgres and we start looking into the ecosystem, there's also more and more solutions towards OLAP data warehousing. So, you know, actually Postgres is starting 9.5 also start incorporating new SQL capabilities that are targeted directly towards OLAP. So this is this is a trend, and I've seen also Postgres used in larger scale OLAP projects. One in the European Union comes to my mind, where Postgres is used exclusively for this. So it can fare there well. There's there's support for uh, rollup and cube functions in SQL, which are directly towards these grouping sets. Also, there's Breen indexes that uh, index in blocks rather than row by row, so you can skip whole blocks, and this leads to very small indexes that are able to to process very fast large amounts of data. So these are capabilities present from 9.5. If you look at, as I was saying, in the ecosystem for OLAP, for example, there's there's an extension created by a, a company called Cydus, Cydus Data, that uh, enables uh, columnar storage in Postgres. It's called C-Store. And actually, we've been using it in, in, in several customers with really excellent results for historical queries or archive data and works really well. And also, if you go deeper into this ecosystem and you look, for example, at Greenplum, Greenplum is an open source database uh, done by Pivotal, which is towards directly data warehousing. It's a clustered Postgres that can scale to many dozens of nodes in, in, in a single database uh, for data warehousing purposes with, with also columnar storage support, different coding supports, compression, and you know performance is uh, astounding for this uh, kind of uh, workloads. So it's all part of the ecosystem in this, in this case. There was just so much there that I wanted to get into. One of the things, I, so my background is, is, is as a closed source DBA, mostly SQL Server. So the idea of using third parties and integrating third party software into production like tightly with the database engine is is foreign to me. Are there any issues with in terms of getting support? If you if you are pulling in plugins from from third parties, is is the support there? How does how does that work if you have a problem? That's a really good question, and it, I would say that the answer varies a bit from uh, you know commercial support provider to another one. Actually, if we look at our example, our use case, for example. We do provide support for a large array of the Postgres ecosystem just because Postgres, as you mentioned very well, this is very normal. As in a commercial database, you may rely only on the tools provided by the vendor. Open source and especially in Postgres, you typically rely on, on external tools from the ecosystem. There's almost no pure Postgres installation without nothing else, which is not coming from the ecosystem. So for most Postgres support providers, 
including these tools are part, part of the support ecosystem is more than a norm. And I've, I actually I haven't seen any problem with this. I remember once where, you know, one customer was using one of these external extensions. It was not originally supported by the Postgres provider, but they soon realized it was very, very good. Uh, it was providing, supporting a good use case for the customer and, and they they started providing support for the, for this extension. So yeah, it's, I would say it's quite common. Any, what are, what are, if you could just name a couple of the most common tools that your customer base are using? You mean Terminal's Postgres ecosystem? Yeah. Well, the, the number one I would say is PG Bouncer. PG Bouncer is a connection pooling for Postgres, mm. and 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 actually, you know, for all the listeners to, to this podcast, I would say, you know, first takeaway: if you're going to deploy Postgres, there is few use cases where you should deploy it without PG Bouncer, because of the way Postgres architecture works, it tends to favor a small number of processes, a small number of connections. And if you have a large number of connections, you should proxy them through a, a PD bouncer. There's also a, a tools for Postgres. One of the best things that I think it has is an extensibility mechanism called extensions. You can think of as plugins, which you can plug dynamically into the database that augment Postgres functionality. Sometimes it's just creating new types or new functions, but they can go as deep as, as touching and modifying the query planner and you know, or replacing a storage engine almost. And one of those is quite simple, but uh, quite handy in order to monitor Postgres. So there's a small extension called pgstatstatements, which basically records the performance of all the queries you executed in the database. And really it comes quite handy in order to monitor and, and improve the performance of the queries. So, you know, pgbouncer, pgstatstatements are almost always there. Then there's of course high availability tools in order to provide automatic failover for Postgres. And among those, I would say, that even though it's not the most used solution as of today, I believe that solutions like Patroni, which are is developed by Zalando, an online commerce shop, in, mainly based in Europe, you know, they're, they're, there's one of the best tools out there to provide Postgres HA. Okay, okay, great. And though the folks, though, there will be links to these things in the in the show notes for you to check out a little bit later. So at the beginning of when we first started talking about Postgres, you mentioned that it favors OLTP and if it or or, or kind of maybe originated there. Um, and if that's the case, then it likely has a, a unique locking strategy or a way to deal with blocking locks, which is something that, you know, any DBA in OLTP land has, you know, struggles with is blocking locks or, or has what's unique or what's interesting about its locking and blocking strategy that facilitates the OLTP workload. That's a really good analysis. Postgres is a well-known technique that most of the other relational databases also use at some point. It's called MVCC, multi-version concurrency control. And basically MVCC looks for being able to handle concurrency with very low locking. Specifically MVCC implementation in Postgres does allows in normal case concurrent reads and writes to, to happen simultaneously even on the same data. Of course, reads and reads can, can happen simultaneously always, but also reads and writes on the same data. The way basically MVCC works is that it creates, let's say, versions of the rows. So each transaction may be operating on a different version of the rows. And you know, so this allows a really high degree of concurrency in Postgres with few logs. There's of course some logs in Postgres and different scenarios, different situations. But typically, concurrent operations can proceed almost without touching each other. Even if this would be a problem in operations that require some locking, for example, when you want to do a select for update and lock some rows for a later update, 
there is a new feature in Postgres, I believe that was 9.5, to skip those logs, uh, those uh, rows that were locked. So rather than waiting on that transaction, your transaction can proceed, but locking a small subset of those or just excluding some, some rows from that subset. So from that perspective, this works very well and enables a really high degree of concurrency in Postgres. And actually it's a database that scales really well with the load and with the number of process, concurrent processors and so forth. Now, there's of course not free lunch and this high degree of MVCC comes with a, with a small pain, which is actually, I would say, that the, most of the uh, significant uh, pain that some customers have in managing Postgres op from an operational perspective is managing the consequences of MVCC, which are called bloat. Because the way Postgres manages this version is of the rows, all versions that may have been deleted or updated are kept there until a background po uh, process called vacuum, or out if launched automatically out of vacuum, goes and check whether those old versions of the rows are no longer uh, held by any transaction and they're effectively deleted. And if so is the case, then the, the market spaces be able to be reused and eventually will get reused. Now, typically this auto vacuum or vacuum process, if not configured appropriately, does not, does not do enough work on a busy database and starts lagging behind, which means there's more space used for these old rows, which means some more IO required to read the data and eventually the database becomes slower unnecessarily. And this is called bloat and it could be one of the main operational problems, but this is just a matter of properly tuning the database. Okay, okay, cool. What about ETL? Um, does Postgres ship with tools? Uh, how do people typically perform uh, ETL interacting with Postgres? So Postgres follows a philosophy of uh, having a very small core so when you download Postgres, you really download Postgres and, and nothing else. It's just a database, right? Right now, if you download Oracle latest version, if I recall correctly, it's a bit over two gigabytes of download that you need to perform. If you download Postgres, it's basically 20 something megabytes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So I think this, this tells us a bit about what is Postgres, right? So Postgres is really, really, really the core of the database. Now, if you want other things, you, you, that's why we rely heavily on the Postgres ecosystem. And then you go for all the tools in this ecosystem. So in terms of ETL, there's, there's no specific functionality inside Postgres for doing ETL. So you rely on, on external tools. Since most of the um, well-known ETL tools support Postgres, this is a no-brainer and almost no tool support ETL. Now, Postgres has a, um, a characteristic that also all the databases have which is based on, on the paradigm of, of change data capture, CDC. In Postgres, this is called logical decoding and was introduced in Postgres 9.4, three years ago. And this feature enables you to, to capture all the changes as they happen on the database, like any insert, update, or delete. You can take them in stream fashion and process them from a logical perspective. So it could be an application, and then you can use this data to be transformed and uh, maybe load and, and on, on a different database. And I believe that the part of the future of ETL is, is gonna go through these CDC mechanisms. And, and here in Postgres, yeah, this logical decoding functionality, is, it is very complete. Actually following Postgres extensibility mechanisms, it is also extensible. So the format in which the changes are streamed out of the database to your application program can be dependent on a plugin that you can also install in Postgres. 
So it's a plugin that you know will be called by Postgres to you, and you will format the output as these changes as you want. Could be plain text, could be SQL, could be JSON, could be Avro. There's many formats that are used also to in, in, in ways of integrating it with all the databases. And derived of this, there are other projects, again, as part of the Postgres ecosystem. For example, one comes into mind right now called Bottle Water that actually lets you ship all these changes from Postgres into a Kafka broker in Avro format. So you have the data in Avro, and then you can process it and integrate with all the data sources, push it to a data warehouse, uh, materialize on a data warehouse, or, or many other options. Oh, very cool. Very cool. Okay. Now, you've mentioned community a few times in ecosystem. Could you describe the Postgres community? Is it a, what is it like? What are your favorite uh, kind of resources where people could kind of go and explore the community? So Postgres is um, very unique in terms of, of how it works from a community perspective. There is, there is no single big Postgres company behind Postgres. There are a few companies um, that employ a significant large of the uh, developers that create Postgres database itself, the core, again, not the ecosystem, but the core. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's a couple of governance groups within the Postgres community which actually more or less manage Postgres, but it's really a very light management. In that regards, it's, it's very, very much like self-managed community. Uh, there's a mailing list around which most of the development discussions happens. It's called Hackers, Hackers mailing list. And, and there, you know, almost all the discussion happen and almost all the decisions are based on exclusively technical merits. So in that regard, it's very unique. It looks a little, like, a little bit like Linux community. However, with a significant difference that there is no Linux Torvalds. Right. It's much more decentralized, let's say, in this regards. The session is more split into several parts. Now, for users uh, about PostgreSQL database, this means that the community is very wide because of this feeling of community. So there's many mailing lists, not only for development, but also for, for users of the database. There is a significant large number of Postgres user groups, uh, meetups, communities that uh, meet frequently around the world. And there is a significant number of Postgres conferences around the world every year. And the number stops growing. So there's no, sorry, sorry, don't stop growing. Right. So there's no like big Postgres conference around the world. Once per year or twice per year, there could be maybe 20 conferences per year in the world. So, you know, it's very easy for users to attend those conferences. I typically attend every year, five to 10, and I would recommend others to do so. It's it's a great way to engage with the community and to learn about Postgres. Okay. And and our, what, what's your favorite? If you had to name one, pick two favorite uh, Postgres conferences, what, what are they? Well, there's one which for historical purposes I cannot miss, which is the Ottawa's conference. Uh, it's called PGCon, and you know it was one of the first ones and gathers most of the core developers in Postgres. But right now, there, I would say that the New York conference is getting bigger and bigger each year, and you know uh, it's also bringing very close the businesses around Postgres. So that's a great conference. But also, and being in Europe, uh, the Postgres European conference is is uh, is another conference I cannot miss. As a as a sneak peek, I would say that. 2018, there's going to be a conference in Spain where we might be contributing to its development. So I would say it's going to be also a good conference. <laughs> Shameless plug. Uh, <laughs> Shameless plug. And, you know, it's so funny. I knew that there was a Postgres conference in uh, Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, and I knew it was one of the first ones, which is so funny. Like, I don't know the history behind it, but actually, do you? Do you know why it's there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Postgres development uh, 
quite some time ago started, well, it was first, it started as Ingress and, and then it moved to Postgres. By that time, Postgres was at the University of Berkeley, California, being developed by Stonebreaker and a couple of uh, grad students. And when Postgres was moved to as a community project, something which uh, people like Bruce Momdian, good friends, started doing, then it was, you know, the a decision needed to be taken as as where to host Postgres development and so forth. At the time, there was some crypto called Inside Postgres, SSL and, and some crypto. So, you know, at that time, the United States, the United States had some restrictions on exports on cryptographic software. So Canada sounded like a nice place. So some of the servers, if not all, uh, were moved to Canada. And, and then, you know, the University of Ottawa provided the resources for starting this conference. And so it started like that. Oh, that's that's too funny. Uh, th- thank you for sharing that. And I, if memory serves, it's in G- it's held in June. Is that right? Yeah, it's uh, between May and June. Yeah. And, and for any listeners outside of uh, Canada or not familiar with the Ottawa area, springtime in Ottawa is excellent. And uh, I also remember the, uh, the that it's a pretty economical conference. Like it's not it wasn't a lot yes. of money to attend. I think it was like. 300 bucks or something like that, which is really cheap for a conference. I could be completely wrong there, but. Uh. It's around that or even less. And we're talking about Canadian dollars, which of the current exchange rate is even less in U.S. Uh, comparable dollars. Oh, so, I yes, I would, I would make a call right now to all the listeners, this podcast, <laughs> to attend this great Postgres conference in Ottawa. Oh, excellent. I'm glad we, we brought that up. All right. So we've talked about features and we know there's a new version out there. So let's talk about some of your favorite features in the latest version, which is 10. What, uh, let, let's just, why don't you pick one of your favorites and let's go into what it is. Okay. Um, it's hard to choose only one. Well, we're um, going, we'll cover a few, but like <laughs> one at a time. Okay. <laughs> so I would say, let me start with one, which is the one that probably is going to make most people happier, even though it might not be necessarily my favorite one per se. It's called logical replication. So, you know, this is easy to understand. Postgres started on version 9.0, providing a streaming replication, which means that you could replicate over the network via on a streaming manner. Actually, you could replicate even before, since Postgres, if I recall correctly, 8.2, by shipping files over the network. But since this version 9.0, you could stream over a network connection, over a socket connection, and changes could be shipped almost as they happen, let's say real time. Uh, since then, Postgres has started adding new features with each version. So 9.0 started streaming replication. 9.1 is to introduce synchronous uh, streaming replication. And up to nine, up to the previous version, which was 9.6, more enhancements to streaming replication came into place, like support for quorum, uh, quorum replication, multiple synchronous replicas, tools like PG Rewind that allows you to stream an old master as a new secondary of a new cluster and so forth. So it's been improving all the time. Now, this is physical replication and physical replication is very efficient and it's a really good way as is the default, the default and the de facto method for replication in Postgres. However, it comes with a few disadvantages, like for example, the destination and the source must match the architecture, hardware architecture, the operating system, because you know Postgres is written in C and there are some architecture dependent uh, parts of it. The version of Postgres has also been to be the same and you replicate the whole cluster. You cannot replicate just one database or one table or a set of subset of those. So logical replication, which actually is built on top of the previous technology that I mentioned, logical decoding, 
Basically, what it does is it subtracted changes to Postgres as inserts, updates, or deletes, transforms them into a logical manner, and ships them to the other replicas, so you can apply them. So based on this infrastructure, logical replication has been built, and right now it works very, very easily. Uh, in Postgres 10, you just create a subscription, and then you create a publisher, and you subscribe to the publisher, and then all your data will be replicated. And this allows cross-version, cross-architecture, cross-operating system replication to happen. And also, it allows you to specify subsets of the information that you want to replicate. So I think this is a really great feature, and it also enables, because it is not version-dependent, it enables future upgrades much more easily than they happen right now. So Postgres 10 is a milestone in these regards. Now, you can replicate in this logical manner with a great deal of flexibility. And actually, the performance, even though it is not the same as physical replication, which is a bit faster, there's not really a significant performance difference. So I would say that logical replication is, is really, right now a really good choice for either replicating data between Postgres instances, but also to replicate data to external systems through this logical decoding interface. Okay, um, and, and with this logical replication, are there any latency considerations? Sure. I mean, uh, all the you could all, actually you could still use a synchronous logical replication in Postgres, which will provide you probably a slower cluster, but at the same time, no data loss solution across all the nodes in the cluster. But since this mechanism is actually built, so logical replication and streaming replication, the binary one, do not operate on, on different principles per se. So physical replication basically takes the records that Postgres uses for durability, called the wall files, and ship them over the network. What a logical decoding, which is the, the, the bricks on which logical replication is built on, works is by taking the same wall files and decoding them back into a logical format, let's say SQL, right? And then ship it over the network. So there's actually not much difference. So there's a bit of latency because of this decoding and later the applying process. I don't have hard numbers here, but it's it's really not really significant in under most scenarios. Okay. Are there any opportunities for replication conflicts to occur? Right now, the way Postgres replication is set up uh, will not allow for conflicts because there's only one master instance. So and from this master instance, you can propagate the changes to the other databases. That doesn't mean that you could theoretically not write to the destination database, because right now in logical replication, it's just that there's an apply process that applies these changes. Otherwise, the database, database is writable, not as it happens in streaming replication. But any changes will not propagate back to the other master. Right. There is a separate project, part of the Postgres ecosystem, for multi-master writes uh, called BDR, bidirectional replication. It is developed by one of the companies that also develops significant part of Postgres called Second Quadrant. And it's actually uh, runs as an extension of, of Postgres. And there, there is multi-master. And yes, there's, there's potentially conflicts if you write to the same piece of data on separate servers. Actually, the way BDR works is that they provide for pluggable conflict resolution techniques. So even though a few of them are bundled by default, like uh, LUW, like list update wins, there's a few others that you can plug in and, and make your decision. Okay, okay. Yeah, I think multi-master rights are the bane of many DBAs existence, <laughs> regardless of platform. Okay, uh, so I think, so, so that's that's cool. What else, what, what other features are you really excited about? So another one that I like very much is the native partitioning support right now in Postgres 10. 
It's not that you could not do partitioning before Postgres 10, which you could do. However, performance was not that good, let's say, and uh, at some parts of it. And there was a lot of work that you had to do more or less manually. So there was a lot of burden on the developer for partitioning Postgres. Right now with Postgres 10, it is included in the SQL syntax, in the DDL syntax in this case for Postgres, and it's very easy to use. Support list and range partitioning, has partitioning will be included in Postgres 11, but list and range is quite flexible and it's very easy to use and provides also tuple routing. In Postgres, there's a, Postgres at the beginnings, uh, since the beginnings was conceived as a very flexible database in many areas. And one of those has also become, because it was a part of a research project, it was it introduced the concept of object orientation into the database very early on. So actually the process of table partitioning Postgres worked as inheritance table. There was like a parent table, which contained definition, and then the child tables, which were their partitions. Now Postgres before 10, you need to create all these tables manually and then route the, ta the tuples that you want to insert or delete or whatever from the parent table into the partitions, for example, by using triggers and triggers you know, are slower. Right now, Postgres 10, there is tuple routing. So if you try to insert of the, well, let's say, parent table, no longer is the parent tables like a definition, they will be, get routed to the uh, child tables. It is not totally optimized, this path. So even if you if you put at the application side, you could know which partition you should write on and you do that directly, the performance will be better. This will be optimized away on Postgres 11, but it's much better than it was before. So this feature introdu introduced, you know, good performing tuple routing, not top performing, but good performing tuple routing and uh, syntax that, you know, comes as part of the standard syntax and you don't need to play with inheritance concepts as which were quite involved previously. Okay, um, and for the users, or sorry, users, listeners who may not have been DBAs, what's the use case for partitioning? Why, why do we, why do we use partitioning? Sure, partitioning comes handy when when use tables are starting to grow. Typical databases may contain a lot of tables, but a few of them will be probably very big, and the rest will probably be very small. These big tables, if they become big enough, they could be slow to scan. And also the indexes, if there's indexes in those tables, they can also become very big. Especially the indexes are important because if an index does not hold all the data into memory and it needs to go to disk, it becomes quite inefficient. And also bigger tables and bigger indexes can be slower. So after, let's say, a few dozen millions of rows, hundred millions of rows, hundreds of millions of rows, tables are good candidates for partitioning. Partitioning basically divides a big table into smaller chunks where a subset of the data or let's say if you partition by time, you can create the table per year and you have the sales per year and one year in one table. This also allows all the things like if you want to archive or prune all data, for example, let's say you want to delete all data, you just delete a partition and you drop instantly a lot of data in a very cheap manner. So it comes quite handy in data management. And if you find the right ways to partition your data, the database can become much more efficient. Right, right, excellent. So are there any other features that you were excited about in, from version 10? Actually, yes. There, there's one which, which I love about Postgres. It's called FDW, which stands for foreign data wrappers. And foreign data wrappers are Postgres implementation of a SQL standard called SQL MED. MED stands for Management of External Data. It's basically, let's say, an API a mechanism in which you can plug external data to Postgres and expose it as if it were tables, say virtual tables inside Postgres. So these foreign data wrappers, these FDWs are like also like plugins to Postgres and you can plug them 
and you know there's plugins for basic things like uh, you know like Excel spreadsheet. So you can you can connect an Excel spreadsheet and manage it as, as regular tables, and you can query with them with SQL. You can join them with other tables. You can do whatever you want. There's foreign developers for all the databases. So from Postgres, you can connect to Oracle, MySQL, Cassandra, MongoDB. There's foreign developers for crazy stuff. Uh, like there's one foreign developer to read your uh, mail via IMAP with SQL queries. Do that. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, um, it's pretty easy to create foreign developers. So you know, there's there's many for many crazy stuff. And there's one which is included into Postgres Core, which is called Postgres foreign data wrapper. And this allows you to connect one database with another database. This foreign data wrapper in particular, and the general infrastructure of foreign data wrapper in general, each release improves more and more, adding more capabilities, specifically in terms of push down of query predicates. You know, the, the first implementation just was just taking the query and pushing it down, in the case of, for example, the Postgres for in the wrapper to the other database. So even though, even though you're saying, let's say, select count star from this table, the for in the wrapper is pulling all the tables and counting on the, on the main database, right? Which is not very efficient. And Postgres 10 included push down of, of, I would say, the last bits of query aggregates, that's significant uh, last bits that were not being pushed down. And so for right now, some joins and, and complex aggregates are also pushed down if the foreign data wrapper supports that. So that, you know, you can now connect external data sources, mainly other Postgres instances, and create complex scenarios very easily and with really good performance. Oh, that, that does sound cool. And interacting with my mail with SQL is actually very attractive. <laughs> I might, I might be, I think I know what I'm doing this afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Let me know how it goes. Uh, to be true, I haven't tried myself. <laughs> All right. So we talked a little bit about cloud. And when I asked you about, uh, actually, uh, kind of a sign of the times, when I asked you about the largest Postgres implementation, you immediately referenced a customer who was uh, leveraging AWS or, or uh, you know, Amazon's public cloud. So is there, I mean, is there a, let's talk about Postgres in the public cloud. Is there a cloud that it, like, where do you see most of the Postgres cloud implementations? There's, there's not cloud offerings from most of the, actually from all the big, let's say big cloud providers uh, for Postgres as a managed service. Uh, AWS has this offer and Google and Azure also have it. If I recall correctly, both of them are actually in beta stage, the, these two latest ones. But, you know, that this means uh, like a really significant push for Postgres as a managed service. Especially surprising in the really good sense was the, the proposal from Azure to support Postgres, right? This comes as a really good, I would say, move from Microsoft and, you know, the, the way it's, it's moving lately towards a more opening ecosystem and open source is really admiring. You know, uh, there, there's there's a really good uh, place for managed database services on top of these cloud providers who already have proposals for this. And for non-managed solutions, there there's definitely a great deal of those in also the three cloud providers. And we actually have had customers in all of three running Postgres. So all of the three main cloud providers are running non-managed, customer-managed instances of Postgres on the three cloud providers like Azure, absolutely no problem. Okay, great, great. So let's talk about uh, for for the DB, for the the audience. What are some of the best learning resources for Postgres? Well, I would say that the first learning resource, even though it may be a little bit scary at the beginning, is Postgres own documentation, the online documentation. 
I always say that Postgres is, in my honest opinion, one of the best documented software projects ever. If you just try to print the document, the, the manual that is on the, on the you know, the post, postgreskill.org slash docs. And it's a uh, PDF form is roughly 3000 pages. Oh boy. Yeah, yeah. So it might be a little bit, you know, hard to read at the beginning, but actually it's very well indexed and you can pick, you know, pinpoint, cherry pick all the chapters that you want to read. There's chapters about internal stuff, like really hardcore stuff. There's there's tutorials at the beginning, there's quick start, there's chapters about SQL, about commands, about, you know, how to lay out your tables. And Postgres community as a whole, Postgres developers are very strict and very careful about documentation. As, a, as an example, I would say that once I did a check on what is the percentage of lines of code within the Postgres source code that are comments, not even documentation, just comments, and they were 80%, 8% of the code are comments. And if you look at the Postgres mailing list, there is even patches to correct typos on comments on code. So even much more for the documentation is very well taken care of. So I would say 90% of what I learned that is not coming from experience comes from reading just this documentation. So that's the first place I would go. Then second and third are the local user groups and the Postgres conferences. They're right. really good places to not only learn, but of course also engage with all the colleagues. And that's that's my strong recommendation. Okay. Okay. Great. And again, folks, those will be in the show notes for you, uh, for you if uh, if you're interested. I think we've covered Postgres fairly well. We normally end our po- our podcast with uh, something I call the lightning round, and that's where I ask you a series of questions, and you answer with the first thing that comes to mind. Are you uh, game? I'm ready. Let's um, try. All right. What project are you most proud of? Well, I would say at this point, uh, this the database that we developed that uh, allows you to connect the NoSQL world and the relational world, TorDB. It's been a project that uh, took more than three years of development. You know, it's creating a new database almost from scratch, reaching in Java, connects these two worlds. It, it transforms data. It, we had to design an algorithm to transform unstructured data into structured data. It creates tables automatically, dynamically, columns. It handles conflicts. And you can take an arbitrary JSON and split down into tables and pieces in a relational manner and actually can get a speed up of up to, we've seen two orders of magnitude up to queries that run 200 and almost 70 times times faster than MongoDB for aggregate queries. So taking queries down from hours to seconds. And so I would say this is one of the most proud projects I am right now. Oh, I, yeah, that sounds really cool. Um, not no, not a normal lightning round question, but where can people find ToroDB to learn more? Just the, the website torodb.com will provide a good wealth of information. There's also the, it's open source, so it's also on on the GitHub repository. Okay, okay, great. And what book has made the most impact on your career? I would say that one of the most important books in, in programming ever, uh, The Art of, of Programming. It's a book that I have to confess that I haven't read fully. It's a really undertaking task. Now, it showed me one of the, in my opinion, more important things about programming, that programming is indeed an art, not just a science. Okay, okay. Standing or sitting desk? Sitting. <laughs> okay, laptop or desktop? Laptop, you know, I traveling all the time and moving all the time. 
and there's really good laptops now. Now, like I have a X1 Carbon Lenovo fourth generation, amazing laptop, micro shoes and small screen, like great laptop. Okay, so that's my next question is normally Mac or PC. So is that laptop running Linux then or Windows? Absolutely, no question. Last time I ran Windows, excluding a few virtual machines here and there for really particular purpose was on 1997 and never came back. Did try Mac a couple of years and now Linux. All right, and uh, I just have to know what flavor of Linux? Ubuntu. Okay, excellent. And are you an iPhone or an Android uh, cell phone guy? I value my privacy and the freedom and, you know, that the hardware I purchase is mine. So I guess the answer is already there. (laughs) All right, fair enough. What is the best tool or app that you use on a daily basis and Postgres can't be it? Man, there's 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 one which I, I I need to have really big praises for this, and it's SSH. You know, Secure Shell. I could not live without it, and everybody should you know pay a great deal of appreciation for the effort behind SSH. Good one. Uh, it is one of the most surprising answers I've heard, but also the second time I've heard it. So uh, so very good. <laughs> Lastly, it's been a lot of fun today. Where can people find you? Where are you speaking next? Okay, so actually, as of today, I finished this year of speaking. I've done this year, I think it was over 12 conferences. So I've been speaking more than 12 conferences. The last ones were uh, Moscow at the High Load Conference last week. And before that, a Java conference called Joker Conference at Petersburg and previous the Postgres European Conference in Warsaw. I will be probably speaking this year at several Postgres conferences, more probably... Uh, could be Scale, which is a Linux conference in, in California at the beginning of the year. Fosdem Brussels, it could be there. Postgres Moscow conference in, in Russia, conference in Moscow in March. Might be also be going to Cuba uh, for the big yearly Postgres conference there. I'll be in Ottawa in May. Actually, there's, there's, I typically tweet uh, where I'm going or where my conferences are. So, you know, people are free to follow this. Also, on our company's Twitter, uh, we, we also post these slides and so forth. Okay. They're good ways of meeting me at conferences. And what is your Twitter and company's uh, Twitter handle? Yeah, so the, the Twitter is A-H-A-C-H-E-T-E. It's basically my initials, A-H-T, but spelled in Spanish. A-H-A-C-H-E-T-E. And the company is Ongress Inc., okay. company name. Great. So, yeah, both are good resources on finding where we are and which talks, conferences are we speaking at. Okay. And, again, folks, all in the show notes. Check us out at pythian.com. Uh, scroll down, and our podcasts are on the blog, but also hosted right in the middle of the page. That's all the time we have for today, folks. The biggest compliment you can give us is by telling a friend where to find us and sending us feedback. We love feedback. You can send that to datascapepodcast at gmail.com. Have a great day in the Datascape. Navigating the Datascape.